If you follow the news closely, South Korean president just completed a six-day visit to the United States. And the purpose is to commemorating the 70th anniversary of the U.S.-South Korean alliance. Now, of course, during the meeting, the two leaders discussed extensively regarding this ongoing political uh, relationship of the two countries and also on the agenda, North Korea certainly was one of the major topics that should really concentrate around the meetings. But meanwhile, during the meetings, we also got a reaction from the North Korea as well. How should we understand the reaction from this North Korean government regarding this alliance between the United States and also South Korea? In today's episode, we also need to talk about what is the future for those two countries under the two current leaders. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, which is Jenny Town. Jenny is a senior fellow at the Stimson Center and the director of the Stimson's 38 North program. And her expertise is in North Korea, U.S.-DPRK relations, and U.S. and ROK alliance, and Northeast Asia regional security. Well, Jenny, and welcome back to The Missing Piece. Thanks, Will. It's always good to be here. Well, Jenny, again, as we mentioned before, the current uh, sitting president of South Korea quickly wrap up his visit to the States. And of meanwhile, I want to start with something that you actually tweeted on social media. And I quote, North Korea's success and continued advance in the WMD realm, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the threat to both use weapons and the moves to control nuclear power plants, even Iran's borderline status within the NPT steam to be glossed over in this narrative. Help us to understand what are you trying to say in this message and also how should we understand the threat from North Korea during the summit between the U.S. and South Korea this time? Well, I would say that tweet was in response to an article that came out recently um, that was talking about the successes of the summit. Um, One of the things that came out uh, was what has been termed the Washington Declaration. Um, And in the Washington Declaration, it did um, advance the way the U.S. and South Korea talk about nuclear options. Mm. Um, It's something that the South Koreans have been wanting for a very long time, a a deeper understanding, or at least some understanding, of U.S. uh, nuclear policy, um, what goes into U.S. decision-making when it does come to um, assessing whether or not to use nuclear weapons, especially in this case on the Korean Peninsula. Um, In the past, there was always this notion of you know, just trust us, right? Mm. Like, you don't need, South Korea doesn't need nuclear weapons. The U.S. has it covered. Um, South Korea is under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. But because the U.S. has command and control, um, you know, the South Koreans naturally want to know um, how those decisions are made, what mm. would sway those decisions in any direction, um, as, a, as a way to just better understand what the nuclear umbrella actually brings. Um, so this article was talking about um, why why we should think better about the Washington Declaration, because there's been a lot of criticism. Mm. Um, I, I think a lot of the criticism has come because it was posed as this will help prevent South Korea from going nuclear. 
Um, and this was the wrong, to me, this is the wrong narrative. Mm. The narrative wasn't about um, preventing South Korea from going nuclear. The, the, the actual purpose of the moves that were made in the Washington Declaration, these are positive developments within the alliance. Um, but as sort of a natural progression, as the security situation gets worse, um, to better inform our ally, to deepen the relationship, it's another way in which the alliance is growing in more strategic ways. Um, and by by putting it in the narrative of preventing South Korea going nuclear, um, it just opens it up to a lot of unnecessary criticism. And, and one was that it's not enough. Mm. Um, and so the article is saying is that the U.S. has had a lot of success in preventing um nuclear proliferation throughout the years and you know yes we have but the failures we've had are significant and are having an impact on the regime the non-proliferation regime as a whole and those um what i was pointing out was those failures north korea russia's invasion of ukraine and um and iran's status now and so because north korea has moved into the realm of having ICBM capabilities, having both strategic and tactical capabilities, it does complicate defenses. Mm. Um, and it is part of the reason why we're seeing um, a lot of questioning of U.S. extended deterrence. You know, Jenny, again, I want to go back to this Washington Declaration. Again, this is something that you touch on. Now, according to the article, that under this new Washington Declaration, the two leaders unveiled a series of measures to reaffirm the U.S. commitment to strengthen and extended deterrence against North Korea provocation. But meanwhile, during the summit, the two sides also initiated what we called a nuclear consultative group to address the nuclear contingency and provide greater transparency on plans to counter North Korea's growing threat. Again, but the question is still the same. Why right now? I mean, for so long, previously, you and I, we had multiple discussions regarding the nuclear weapon threat from North Korea. This should not be something just happened randomly, or this shouldn't be a surprise to both countries. But why now that right now the two countries or the two leaders decided, again, not to renegotiate, uh, is to initiate and also to deepen the comprehensive plan to counter North Korea? What is the purpose behind this? Um, as I said, in South Korea, this has been something they've wanted for a very long time um, and something that is constantly brought up of that, you know, to have confidence in extended deterrence. They want a better idea of what are the conditions, what are what factors would sway U.S. decision making on actual nuclear use or non-use, um, and this is just something that in 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 certain circles in the defense circles and stuff, there's very limited discussion of because South Korea is a non-nuclear weapon state, mm. um, and this was kind of okay before North Korea got um, ICBM capabilities, right? So now the fact that North Korea can potentially target both the US and South Korea at the same time really raises a lot of questions of how does the US actually evaluate that situation? Mm. What would, how do they weigh that decision if the decision needs to be made? Um, 
And I think this was really, really, this anxiety was really exacerbated when Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, what happens next? What might North Korea do? Um, and seeing sort of the restraint in having a, a large nuclear armed adversary, you know, attack a non-nuclear weapon state and threaten to use nuclear weapons. What what South Korea has seen from this is sort of the the great restraint of we don't want a nuclear war, mm. which is a good thing. Mm. Um but at the same time, if you're a South Korean, you're looking at it of like, if North Korea were to attack or if North Korea were to attack with nuclear weapons, what would that mean? Right. So that's really why this um, why this discussion has been elevated in the past year. Um, this decision to do a nuclear consultative group is not new. It didn't come out of the blue. Um, there were there was mention of it in the last security consultative mechanism between the defense um, ministers, defense minister and the secretary of defense um, in their last meeting. Um, and it's something that has been under discussion for a while. Um, so putting it here, announcing it during the summit was sort of the natural place to do it as it is a big deal. Um, but at the same time, it's not new. Um, it doesn't put new capabilities into the region. It's literally, you know, a way to help um, improve understanding and enhance communication about um, what the nuclear umbrella actually means. Well, but Jenny, let's bring another piece of reality into our conversation. If I'm not mistaken, former U.S. President Donald J. Trump was the only leader actually visited North Korea. And again, the, the whole scenario, the entire the world went crazy when he sat down actually with Kim Jong-un, regardless the deal that he made with Kim Jong-un, but I have to say, under Donald Trump, the relationship between U.S. and North Korea softened. As Again, it might not be much, but it was better than before. But since Joe Biden became the president, again, you and I, we had this discussion on numerous occasions that U.S. has not taken time or U.S. has not initiated any strategies to counter the threat from North Korea. What happened? I mean, is there a message that Joe Biden or is there a step that Joe Biden purposefully missed or he was actually waiting for the right moment to invite the South Korean president come into the state and to re-discuss this matter or to strengthen this relationship. Help us to understand. So, you know, first, the clarification, um, Donald Trump did not go to North Korea. Mm. Uh, the, the closest he got was Pemundam, right, mm. in the Sea in the Otherwise, he always met with Kim Jong-un in a third country. Mm. Uh, but yes, the relationship was better, but it was at a time when North Korea was willing to negotiate, wanted to negotiate, and there was clear potential benefits to negotiating, mm. um, both from South Korea and from the U.S. Um, that situation has changed drastically, mm. as has the broader security environment in East Asia. I mean, there is an arms race going on in East Asia, and China is part of that. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the, the problem with what we saw then versus what we see now is that, um, you know, in the failure to get an agreement in Hanoi had a major impact on, of course, on, 
and Kim Jong-un's thinking about mm. what the opportunity is. Um, I think it's really underappreciated how much he had built up domestic expectation um, that, that they were turning a corner, that this was, you know, they were going to have this major breakthrough in relations with the U.S. Um, and so going home empty-handed and then having to lower those expectations of, of what they got from that um, and what they were going to get. Um, was really a difficult matter for him. Mm. Um, and so, you know, with the change of administration in the United States, um, I think the Biden administration has a negotiating strategy. So if North Korea ever makes the decision to come back to negotiations and wants to talk about nuclear issues, yes, the U.S. has a strategy of how they would approach that. Um, but we don't have a strategy for how to build the diplomatic opportunity again. Mm. Um, and the problem is, is that, you know, having been burnt um, in the last or having failed in the last negotiation, um, there's really going to be a lot of, there, there's there's no real rush on the mm. North Koreans to come back to negotiations because what are they going to get? What mm. can they expect? Um, and, you know, the way the North Koreans negotiate, um, they need to have some confidence that there's that they can get results. Right. Mm. Like they're very results oriented. They're very pragmatic about those kinds of things. Um, and nothing that we're doing right now would indicate um, any kind of or build any confidence that there's something to that there's something to get. Mm. Right. Um, or that it would. That, that it would be an easy negotiation, that it would be a short negotiation, that within a couple of meetings, they would be able to come to at least some kind of agreement to move the relationship back in a different direction. Mm. Um, it's also, again, the whole security environment with the arms race going on in East Asia, and especially with South Korea testing and developing ballistic missile technologies as well, this is a problem. Mm. Um, it's very difficult to expect the North Koreans to want to negotiate anything on the arms, you know, arms control side of the equation or arms reduction side of the equation when the rest of the region is ramping up. Jenny, mm. I want to go back to, um, again, the reaction from North Korea. Again, during the summit, while President Biden and President Un met up each other, again, in uh, the White House. But meanwhile, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un repeatedly threatened to attack with his million-man conventional force, extensive conventional artillery tubes that can effectively destroy the city of Seoul and a growing nuclear arsenal that could erase South Korea from the map. And also, meanwhile, on social media, this is something you shared as well regarding the reaction from North Korea towards the summit. Now, Jenny, again, the question I asked you before, and I want to ask you one more time, how serious should we understand the reaction from North Korea? Are they going to pay much greater attention to this alliance between South Korea and also the United States? After the summit, how much do you think that North Korean government is willing to talk to the U.S. or willing to settle down with the South Korea at this moment. What do you say to that? Well, the statement coming from Kim Yo-jong about, you know, in reaction to the summit is very predictable. Mm. Um, like, there's nothing really surprising there. Um, we expected 
that the North Koreans would not be happy with the signs. Um, they're already on a path where they're watching very closely what U.S. and South Korea are doing, especially in terms of military drills, in terms of the rhetoric coming out of Seoul, especially um, all of these create a greater antagonistic environment, especially when there is when there's no channels of communication that are going on. Um, and North Korea plays its part in that as well, right? Where they're also, um, even before the U.S. and South Korea were doing military drills, they were they were on a development path. They were testing new missile systems every week. Um, last year, they tested more than 60 ballistic missiles. They did more than 90 missile launches, if you mm. include also cruise missiles um, and, and non-ballistic missile technologies, right? So... Um, and now they're doing, you know, reciprocal kind of deployment, missile deployment drills. Um, I would expect, you know, that we're going to see more muscular language come out of Pyongyang because of the way that this was rolled out, mm. um, as well as, you know, continuing down that development path. They haven't met all the goals yet um, that they set in 2021 on their five-year plan. Um, we still expect to see, you know, satellite launches, reconnaissance satellite launches, I would expect to see more ICBM tests. Mm. Um, but it, it certainly, yes, they, they are paying attention. Um, some of it is they do anyway, <laughs> uh, because especially when the U.S. and South Korea are doing these live fire, large scale mm. military drills. Um, but some of it is, you know, would be regardless of, whether we're doing stuff or not, because they, they really were, they have their own schedule and their own development that they're trying to accomplish it as well. Um, so, you know, the, the response that they had didn't necessarily tell us anything new, mm. um, but it, it was expected that they, you know, that this is a big announcement that they would still be unhappy with the situation. But in reality, Jenny, there are still some countries Either they are boldly or they are secretively still supporting North Korea in terms of developing the nuclear weapons. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm not mistaken, not too long ago I was able to research that one of the countries in Africa is called Burkina Faso's. They were either they were thinking in the process of restoring this political relationship with North Korea, or they are going to continue to support North Korea in terms of developing this nuclear weapons. Now, such country like that is actually playing such a dangerous game, not only with the world, but also with, again, the future. We're looking at this international security. Jenny, I want to know, again, you're the expert if we get this right, why not stop the countries, completely isolate North Korea on, on, in, in a much greater scale so that more countries will stop supporting Kim Jong-un or stop supporting this nuclear weapon in order to, uh, to save the world? Why bother still allowing those countries secretively sending the resources or sending the finance to Kim Jong-un to the country? Well, the question is, is can we really isolate North Korea? Mm. Um, you know, given the fact that, you know, we already have pretty loose implementation of the sanctions that already exist, and especially those um, that do sanction uh, um, the assistance in areas of 
of nuclear and missile technologies, right? Um, and China is a big piece of this, mm-hmm. of that there's only so much China is willing to do um, and that there's only, you know, without the assistance of major countries such as China, Russia, for instance, um, and especially major supply lines. Mm. Um, how does North Korea, how do people get stuff to North Korea? Um, those, it's really unrealistic that we can actually isolate North Korea. That said, North Korea did it to themselves during the pandemic, right? Mm. They shut their borders, they stopped all trade flows coming in and out of the country in 2020, 2021. They've just started in 2022 to open back up, at least to some limited um, trade in limited forms. Um, They haven't allowed people to come back in yet, but they are allowing goods and services, goods to be traded. Um, But what we've seen, for instance, are a couple big shifts. And one is the more we isolate North Korea from, say, commercial trade, Mm. um, the more they they go underground, right? The more they focus on illicit activities and illicit networks, and especially these days, cyber, cyber crime, cryptocurrencies, Mm. um, and, and even cyber intelligence. All of this has been stepped up in recent years and been very successful for the North Koreans. So again, can you really isolate North Korea? The other thing that's happened is that we do have basically this move, you know, increased great power competition and this move towards sort of a value-based world order of democracies versus autocracies, right? Mm. And in doing so, North Korea has been really good at cultivating relations on the other side of the equation, yeah. right? North Korea is not a democracy. It's not going to be a democracy, but neither are these other countries. Um, and so, if, you know, given that reality, um, North Korea has really leaned into this Cold War mentality mm. and, and rekindled friendships. Um, mm. Back in 2017, for instance, uh, when China was willing to be more active in the process and and the U.S. and China were cooperating on the same page as to how to respond to North Korea, you did see North Korea's reputation as a pariah grow, right? More and more states that historically had done even illicit uh, trade with North Korea were backing off. They were, were they were more worried about it. They were more deterred from it. Um, but you don't have that now. Uh, and especially, you know, looking at China and Russia's responses in the UN Security Council, you don't have global consensus um, and you, you definitely don't have agreement on what the right approach is to North Korea. And because of that, um, the reputation, you know, the reputation piece is also hard to factor into the equation. And of course, Jenny, because of the war in Ukraine, also we have seen this attitude from the Russian and also from the Chinese side as well. Now, I want to keep on our conversation going back to uh, South Korean president. Again, during his visit, he also addressed the Congress. Now, he repeatedly invoked the memories of the Korean War and the South Korea's uh, uh, again, economic development and emphasize this relationship between uh, U.S. and South Korea. But given the fact that today we know that internally speaking, current South Korean president 
has almost lost his charm domestically speaking. Now, I want to ask you, by visiting the U.S. and by, again, building or strengthening this relationship with the U.S. today, how much do you think it actually boosts his credibility, not just internationally, but domestically? Because we know that today people are very concerned in South Korea regarding this economic projection and also the status of South Korea on this international level. What do you say to that, Jenny? Um, I think that... Uh you know, it's not going to make him super popular. <laughs> and the narrative coming out of the summit focused so much on the extended deterrence equation. It really it really dismissed and downplayed and undermined any of the successes that came out of the summit on the economic side of the equation, which is much more what the South Korean people are concerned about. Um, the extended deterrence debate and, you know, the questioning of U.S., um, commitment to extended deterrence. This is a much more elite level discussion. Mm. This is not reflected in public opinion polls in South Korea. Um, but the the idea of like, did South Korea get actual gains in the Inflation Reduction Act that would benefit South Korean companies is a little unclear, right? Mm. What actually happened? What the economic impact is actually going to be? Um, in order for the South Korean people to really evaluate, you know, was this successful in anything other than, you know, the security realm. Um, the other problem is right before <laughs> he went to the U.S., he, you know, the interview that he did where he talked about how just because Japan, you know, wronged South Korea 100 years ago doesn't mean mm. they should stay on their knees for 100 years, did not play well in South Korea, mm. of course. Um, and that is something that is much more real and tangible to the South Korean people um, than some of what came out of the summit. Um, I think the other question that will be important in this is um, what is China's reaction to mm. a lot of what happened, especially on the security side, uh, from the summit as well, in the direction that the alliance is going. Um, we've heard some early signs um, pre-summit um, of already voicing concerns from Beijing um, and already some dissenting voices and critical voices coming out of Beijing after the summit. Mm. Uh, the question is, is, you know, how does that translate into actions over time? Um, and if that has any kind of actual, you know, impact on South Korean economy, like those are the ways in which um, the South Korean people will evaluate the situation. Jenny, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking you one more question regarding this military drill between South Korea and Japan lately. Again, when we talk about China today, one of the greatest concern is the growing military empowerment under the current leader. Again, uh, again, keep in mind that the whole world is still follows the war in Ukraine and everyone is very concerned if China is going to invade Taiwan. Of course, that we have seen multiple military drills around the island and that sent a, a pretty crystal clear message to the people in Taiwan. Of course, they are very concerned regarding their own safety. 
But meanwhile, we're looking at this military cooperation between South Korea and Japan at this moment. Now, what is the understanding behind this? Is a next step preparation to counter China's uh, preparation uh, for military? And also, is there any effective measure the two countries should prepare in order to avoid much greater disaster with China? What do you say to that? Well, the, the stepped-up cooperation, bilateral, trilateral cooperation in the region between the U.S., South Korea, and Japan, and especially South Korea and Japan, um, is there's several factors that are going into this. And the number one factor is North Korea's continued advancement, um, their own drills, the vast number of missiles that they're shooting off. These really do heighten anxieties in South Korea and Japan about mm. what North Korea is going to do. Mm. Um, it really, and, and again, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine has had a, an enormous psychological effect in the region. So there is just a lot of insecurity going on right now. Um, and a lot of which has fueled the deeper cooperation with the United States as well as the U.S. tries to address um, and allay some of these anxieties. Um, naturally, though, without major channels of communication about what's happening and and and, and how to perceive it, um, it, it is <laughs> it can be just as as agitating as it is assuring, right? Um, and I think there there's a lot of concerns, not only like if a contingency happens in Taiwan, but if a contingency happens in Taiwan, what does North Korea do? Mm. So, you know, it, it isn't necessarily planning. It isn't all about China all the time. <laughs> um, but, you know, certainly it's part of the factors that build insecurity and anxiety. And part of the reason why we do see heightened security cooperation is that I think in a lot of the countries right now, there's just rising insecurity and that requires um, greater uh, greater cooperation, greater planning, rethinking how they plan. Um, and I think what you see now, too, is a real move to rethink and start to think about also um, what happens if there is nuclear use. Like we can't, mm. you know, there's the, I think what Russia did was really make real the idea that nuclear weapons could be used again. That I don't think we really thought, we didn't really believe before that. Um, and so, you know, now the big anxiety is how do we continue to fight? How do we respond if there's nuclear use um, and or multiple fronts um, and all these new kinds of contingencies given the security situation? This is what's really driving a, a lot of, of that cooperation. Well, I think, Jenny, I 100% agree with you because today, right now, when we are looking at this international security, it's not just about the war in Ukraine. It's not just about this democratic system is facing major threat. Again, what matters the most is how we are able to sit down and have this peaceful transition or this peaceful dialogue and so that at the end of the day, the last thing we want on the table is to start another war and let alone the war can be started by the nuclear weapons and which is going to be very alarming for the world. 
Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Jenny Town. Again, Jenny, it's a senior fellow at the Stimson Center, and she's the director of the Stimson's 38 North program. Her expertise is in North Korea, USDPRK relations. Again, I strongly encourage you to follow Jenny on social media, and she always share a lot more insightful and meaningful analysis regarding the international community. So again, Jenny, thank you so much for taking your time. And again, let's keep in touch. We'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to follow this political change in North Korea and also around the world. So thank you so much for doing this.